I guess this is like the thing that you like think about at night while you're trying to fall asleep. You're like, what if all of my work is just unintelligible? Ugh. This episode of Data Stories is sponsored by Quadrigram, a web-based application designed to bring data stories to life. With Quadrigram, you can create and share interactive data stories without the need of any coding skills. Check it out at quadrigram.com. Hey everyone, Data Stories number 70. Hi Enrico. Hey, how's it going, Moritz? Good, good, good. Just finishing off my week. Yeah, same here. Uh, yeah, so I had a playful Friday today. I played with uh, image grids uh, of image similarities and with ASCII data visualizations. I, I had a good day. Wow, this sounds I'm so geeky. Mood. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, I have serious stuff, stuff to do, so that's my procrastination. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good, good. How about you? All good on your side? Yeah, busy, busy. With mm-hmm. paper, paper designing, paper writing, our yeah. the this deadline is coming up soon, so mm-hmm. everyone is a little nervous here. It's getting tighter and tighter. Yeah, which is yeah. good. I like it in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of stuff gets done in a few yeah. weeks. Cranking it yeah. up. Yeah, very good. <laughs> okay, let, let's start. So today we have another very special guest. Um, it's Rachel Bings. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hello. Great to have you on. We wanted to have you on for a while already, and now we learned it's the perfect timing we have. So <laughs> can you give us a little introduction of yourself? You have quite a diverse background. So uh, what have you done in the past? What are you currently doing? Sure. Um, so I've been uh, working in data visualization for several years at this point. Mm. Um, I started off at Stamen uh, Design in San Francisco. And from there, was doing some freelancing work and did a couple small companies about making products. Um, and then recently, I've been at NASA JPL uh, working on a telemetry visualization tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you should definitely check out Rachel's website. She has a lot of really amazing projects from cool data visualizations to also real products you can order and buy like pillows and skirts with cool maps <laughs> and so on, which I love. Uh, but I think today we want to mainly talk about the NASA gig because this is, of course, what everybody's interested <laughs> in. And uh, so you've been working at NASA JPL. It's the Jet Propulsion <coughs> Laboratory. Laboratory, right? So w- what's going on there? Um, yeah, so JPL is the NASA center that's responsible for most of the um, like the spacecrafts in like outside of Earth. Um, so the deeper spacecrafts. Um, there's the Curiosity rover there, which is probably the most well known. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have Opportunity and Cassini and Dawn and <laughs> SMAP, a bunch of Earth orbiters. Um, so yeah, lots of spacecrafts These are really going cute on there. Names, by the way. That's so geeky. I, I know, it. right? <laughs> Well, it's funny because they're like some of them are the more public-facing ones. Uh-huh. So, like uh, Curiosity is the Mars Science Laboratory (MSL) and Opportunity is the um, see Mars Exploration Rover mm-hmm. (MER). Nice. And so, uh, how many people is it roughly there at the laboratory? Do you know? oh, that's a good question. I think it's a couple of thousand. Mm-hmm. So I, it's big. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's been your job there? And and in which unit? And how is the whole thing organized? So just assume I just know the name NASA and I have a big idea that's pretty cool, but I, I know yeah, nothing definitely. how they operate. Uh, um, can you so tell I, yeah. mm-hmm. 
Um, I am in the human interfaces group in the planning and sequencing uh, section mm -hmm. of JPL. And so planning and sequencing is about um, dealing with uplink and downlink data. Um, so that telemetry is a general term for data that's being transmitted. Um, downlink is data that's received from the spacecraft, and then uplink um, is making the plan for what the spacecraft should do next. Uh, so the tool that I've been working on is mainly concerned with downlink. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, when the spacecraft is transmitting data, um, it is you know received by the deep space network, and then operators at JPL need to view and analyze the telemetry to understand um, if the previous plan you know, went off without a hitch or if there's any problems or, you know, um, all that sort of long-term trend, long-term trending, um, but also daily analysis. Mm -hmm. So you get some data and you have to make it more digestible. So I would assume you personally do a lot of data visualization. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Um, I've been leading a team that's working on this one particular tool called Vortex. Mm -hmm. uh, And That's a cool name. Yeah. They, they have it with the names, really. <laughs> well, it's funny because like everything. <laughs> well, I don't know. The government is very fond of acronyms, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. and at some point, I like came up with this. I was like, "Yeah, I want to call it Vortex." Yeah. And my manager said, "Cool, what's that an acronym of?" And I was like, "No, mm. silly, it's just a name." And he's like, "Well, no, like we have to have it be an acronym so that you know we can explain it in powerpoints, yeah. basically." So I spent like two hours coming up with a backronym <laughs> for it. Um, so Vortex now stands for uh, Visually Organize and Represent Telemetry for Examination and Exploration. That's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> totally works. Yeah. I'm very proud of myself with that. <laughs> of course, they made the acronym backward. They first started from Vortex and then found it, right? <laughs> I know, right? It was kind of fun when I was playing around with it. I'm like, oh, I need to come up with like, you know, what's a good R? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And so the project, what what was the main focus of that? Mm -hmm. um, so to explain the project, I pretty much have to explain the types of data that are coming down from spacecrafts. Yeah. Um, so there's three categories. Um, first are channels, which are basically time series data. So you might have the temperature of a particular component um, or the voltage um, you can also kind of overload the meaning of this um, in these things called enumerated channels, where if you have something that's on or off, you would encode that as a zero and one and then decode that um, on the ground. And so these enumerated channels, you can keep track of you know, many states that are going on on the spacecraft. Um, and so that's so channels are, you know, to this time series data is like the first category. Um, the second are event records or EVRs. And EVRs are basically log statements of activities that are happening on the spacecraft. So um, they're basically, you know, pre-programmed ahead of time. So like if, you know, a temperature is like getting close to its limit, you might get a little like, hey, you know, temperature is trending upward mm -hmm. log statement. Or if there's anything that like trips an alarm, then you'll get a warning. Um, and so those are basically, you know, some bit of text and a timestamp. Um, and then the third category is this like everything else data products. Um Which is a bit of a cop out, but this could be something like images, or it could also be a higher resolution data um, than a channel mm -hmm. um, that's sort of zipped up and sent as one file. Mm -hmm. um, so data products are a little bit of a beast, but um, our application deals with channels and EVRs. And a lot of the analysis that people have to do is sort of jumping back and forth between the two types of data. Mm -hmm. um, so you would have your, your typical sort of time series um, 
graph over time of, you know, channel data, but then you'll also have these, you know, particular EVRs that you need to establish the context of what was happening around them. Um, so it's a lot of jumping back and forth using time as your reference between these two data types. Mm -hmm. And is it mostly like monitoring in real time or going back sometimes years to, or is the past interesting at all or, or is it more about oh, definitely. real time monitoring? Yeah. I mean, it sort of depends on, um, both the type of spacecraft and the, you know, what, what the operator's job is. Mm -hmm. Um, so spacecrafts like, um, like an earth orbiter or a rover are sending uh, data back every single day, usually several times a day. Um, so for those operators, it's a lot of, you know, kind of real time, like, okay, is everything okay? Like, did anything, you know, is anything trending upward? Should I be worried about anything? Um, and then spacecrafts that have been operating for a long time, like Dawn or Cassini, you know, they're pretty much set in, um, in their path and you can make a plan for them, you know, several months and beam it up. And then it's just, you're kind of monitoring to make sure that the plan, uh, is going well, according to plan, um, <laughs> For something like Cassini, you would you need to do a lot of long-term trending to because you know the hardware degrades over time, and so you want to make sure that you know if your battery life is shrinking over time, so you want to make sure that you're not going to overload the spacecraft with the science activities that you have planned. Um, so there's you know a lot of like ten-year graphs that you need to <laughs> check in with periodically to make sure that everything's functioning uh, roughly what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's so what what was your role and and how like what have you, can you give us describe a few concrete like UIs you have been designing and and building? Yeah, definitely. Um so I've been leading a team uh with a few designers and developers on it. Um we have four clients, which is why I kind of cycle between these different uh <laughs> spacecrafts. There's SMAP, which is an earth orbiter, um MSL Curiosity, um and then Cassini and Dawn. Um, and so my role, um, the project started off uh, primarily for SMAP, and then MSL got brought on, and then Cassini, and then Dawn. Um, so part of my role has been um, basically doing like client services with the different missions, you know, doing user research, interviewing operators, understanding the different use cases on a per spacecraft basis, um, and then translating those into um, features in the UI. Um, As you can expect, if with there's a bunch of time series data, the uh, sort of main application of this would be a really awesome graph. Um, <laughs> but there's you know so many different features that you can have on the graph, and you know different ways to display it and filter the data, um, and sort of tweak it until you arrive at the answer that you need. So when we talk about visualization, I think it's interesting to distinguish between visualizations that have some 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 clear users uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're trying to target and those that are more for the general public. So I'm curious to hear from you, um, are there any specific methods or methodologies that you use to gather um, like requirements from people and uh, what, what process did you follow there? I'm, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's funny because like um, on some level, Well, a lot of the power of this tool is that it's it's fast and um, basically Elasticsearch came to JPL recently and suddenly, um, you know, with the downsampling of data, you could make fast queries. And so, you know, getting these channel graphs used to take several minutes, if not hours, depending on the length of time and the spacecraft and how they're storing the data. And so now if that query can return in seconds, like that's just a game changer for the operators. Um 
So the primary goal of this was to provide a front end for that Elasticsearch backend of the data. Um, and so, you know, it, like on some level from like a visualization perspective, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel because you're just like, oh, here's a graph. And people are like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. it's so fast. <laughs> we can use it. <laughs> so visual. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah, that's exactly um, the, the, but, the kind of aspects that I'm really interested in because here you are maximizing mm -hmm. for or optimizing for some, um, I would say, unconventional kind of constraints and characteristics, right? Definitely. And I mean, some of it also, like the visualizations are a bit constrained by the ways that we can get data back from Elasticsearch. Um, like for instance, the event records, there's, uh, depending on the mission, there's usually like um, up to seven different categories of types of event records. So you'll have like a command, diagnostic, uh, activity low, activity high, warning low, warning high, fatal. Um, And one of the things that we got from Elasticsearch was basically, you know, a count, a roll-up of the different types of EBRs in a particular time period, um, and then bucketed that by, you know, certain smaller periods of time. Um, and so once we realized that, you know, this was like an available feature of the data, it was like, oh, well, we might as well make a histogram of the different types. Um, and so we put that together, and, you know, it was one of those things that, again, took like a day to kind of slap together on the page. But but the operators had never seen their data like that. And so every time we put it in front of people, they're like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> this is like the heartbeat of my spacecraft. Like I've never seen this before. <laughs> um, and so that's really exciting to like, you know, these people have been working on it for, you know, years, if not decades. And to show them a completely new way of, you know, viewing their data was pretty exciting for us. So do these visualizations also go in, the, in some of the existing control rooms? That's my, that's my dream. <laughs> to build a visualization <laughs> that goes in a NASA yeah. control room. I saw it la last la last year. I, I visited NASA and I saw some one of these control rooms, and I was mm, like, mm -hmm. oh, "That's where I want to be <laughs> next." Uh, me too. I know that room is gorgeous. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So our site is used for some of the. Um, I think it, I think it comes up mostly for anomaly detection because yep. um, all of the projects that we work with were existing spacecrafts. You know, by the time that we started our software, so they had their process down. But um, our our application is really useful for you know if something goes wrong and they need to be able to pull up different types of data quickly and you know do this analysis on something that's not in their like handful of channels that they look at every day. Um, So I think during you know anomaly analysis and resolution that this uh, is an application that people are using in like a large room full of people. Yeah, I think that that's an amazing application for visualization that we don't talk enough about. The idea of using this for monitoring, it's it's a fascinating mm -hmm. area that um, I think I feel like is not very well developed. I, I guess Moritz worked a little bit on that as well, right, Moritz? You had a security kind of project or something? Yeah, last yeah last year I finished a project for a security company. They would monitor real time like internet security events, and it's mm. it's true. It's very different, like how you have to design, like an ambient display or mm -hmm. something that is always there and is always a bit different, but should also have a predictable structure in some form. Yeah. yeah. This is something that we've worked on a bit as well, um, and it's one of those things that's kind of up in the up for debate because um, a lot of the sort of ambient monitoring. Um, so a spacecraft is broken up into subsystems. Um, so you might have like thermal or telecon mm -hmm. or fault protection, 
Um, and so basically each subsystem has, you know, is responsible for making sure that their piece of the spacecraft is functioning nominally. Um, and so they usually, you know, determine this by having a certain set of channels um, that have, you know, different thresholds. So, you know, there's like a range of acceptable temperatures or that it should always be in the functioning state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you're able to kind of do this roll up of like, okay, if everything, you know, if all my channels in my subsystem are all functioning within this range, then like call it good, you know, green for good kind of thing. Um, but, you know, then, uh, you know, other people that are looking at this, like there's systems engineers that are sort of in charge of making sure that every single system is all, you know, performing nominally. Um, and so there's some debate, you know, because some people are like, oh, yeah, like a little green circle for each subsystem. Like, that's all I need to know. But, you know, other people are like, well, what if a channel is like trending upwards? Like, what if it's <laughs> about to go out of range? Yeah. Like, I need to see that, too. And, you know, so it's like, how do you design like situational awareness that, um, you know, is informing people of uh, kind of what 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 they need to be looking at in the near future? That's a Great question, because I was thinking about that too. Like a lot could probably be automated or there's probably rules and limits and thresholds for everything somewhere specified, yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have, as you say, this you want to see when something behaves a bit differently already and or you want to see the, the, the trend or some, if something's odd. And I think, as you say, there's also this emotional connection. It's a bit like, you know... Uh, like the ultrasound of your baby, right? It's like it's it's <laughs> out there somewhere, and you have just this <laughs> tireless, super noisy channel, but you can connect to your mm-hmm, baby, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because, like, I mean, there's this whole sort of vast alarms network where um, you know there's certain thresholds of alarms of channels going in and out of range that will trigger. You know, like the very least, you get like an email that's like, oh, this channel's going out of range. And then you, then you escalate to a text message. And then, you know, the highest one is like alerting other people on the project that, you know, your channel's out of range. And you might get a phone call at 3 a.m. that says, you know, you got to get to work right now because like something's going down on the spacecraft. Um, yeah. And basically, you know, these operators, like the the values of what's an acceptable range can change over time in both like the science activities that you're planning and however the hardware, you know, reacts over time. And so... There's definitely some points where, like, you know, something can, like, be trending upward and then hit one of those alarms and then suddenly you've woken up everybody else on the project in the middle of the night because, like, you forgot to adjust the alarm threshold of your channel. (laughs) That's a good time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week. As you all know, modern life is complex and this creates the need for digital creators to support their arguments with facts and figures. A data-based narrative which intertwines annotations and media elements with data visualizations is the perfect way to communicate complex realities. It's not only important to understand and process lots of information, but we also need to have the tools to communicate findings in a structured and nice way. Now, Quadrigram is a web-based application to create and share these types of data stories on the internet. Its intuitive interface allows users to design interactive narratives by merging graphic elements, such as text, images, videos, and data visualization modules into a single data story. And you can then publish your work as a fully functional website or interactive slide presentation without the need of any coding skills. Readers can browse the story and discover their own findings, basically create their own unique synthesis. Quadrigram is a product by Bestiario, a design firm with more than 10 years of experience in the wonderful field of data visualization. 
Quadrigram is free and you just need a Gmail account to start building and sharing your data stories. So check it out at quadrigram.com. That's Q-U-A-D-R-I-G-R-A-M.com. And now back to the show. It looks like that anomaly detection is one of the few areas where machine learning almost completely failed, right? There is, there is a, <laughs> there's a very nice paper I read a, a few months ago. It's called Outside the Closed World on Using Machine Learning hmm. for Network Intrusion Detection. And these are security mm -hmm. experts in the field who've been analyzing why actually intrusion detection, automated intrusion detection doesn't seem to have worked. Because in practice, it's not very much used. And, and I think that's, hmm. that's a fascinating topic, understanding why um, automated solutions don't work and visualization does seem to work, at least to, to some extent. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is like one of the things that we've been encountering on this project is that, you know, I think from, from like a visualization background, you're like, oh, I can come up with some really slick way to like roll up all of your data and you don't have to look at it. But these operators are like, no, I just, I just want to see <laughs> my data. Like, yeah. you know, like it, it's my responsibility if it's abnormal and I, you know, you're like, okay, well, how do I tell if it's abnormal and I'll just take care of it? And they're like, no, no, I just <laughs> want to see it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's why a lot of this tool is just, you know, like, okay, it's a, it's a table of event records that you can be filtering and sorting and, you know, but at the at the end of the day, you're like, okay, yeah, it's it's a table, and that's what we, <laughs> yeah. that's what people need, that's what people want, that's what we're going to give them. We're going to make it like the best table they can possibly have, but you know, it's still a table. <laughs> okay, um, I'm curious about process. So it sounds a bit like that uh, you talk to the stakeholders or the users. The, it's first of all, it's a very small user group, right? So you can basically talk mm -hmm. to the two or three users of your tool directly, which is a huge plus. Um, <laughs> and then how do you work out what to do? Is it, it's, it sounds like a very, like almost casual, informal process that you come up with ideas and then you try it out and then you see if it works. <laughs> Is it a bit like that? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Feel I mean, free a to bit. formulate it in a more fancy way, of course. But <laughs> um, yeah, that's been one of the really nice things about working at JPL is that I think for previous projects that were more, you know, either like public outreach or sort of marketing or I don't know, you're just kind of putting it out into the world at large and you're like, mm -hmm. I hope this makes sense. And, you know, you can do like specific user testing, but like you're, if you're just hoping for a general audience, like, I don't know, that's still something I struggle with of like, how do you make sure that you're building understandable visualizations? Right. Um, but that's something that I don't have to worry about at JPL because my user base is 100% contained on lab <laughs> and I can email and set up meetings with them anytime that I want. Wow. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, it's been great. We've, um, you know, basically like the operators are excited about new tools and new ways to be, you know, analyzing their data. And so we can just sit there and talk to them and talk through their process and, you know, what's already taken care of for you, what are like frustrations and then, you know, start brainstorming ideas with them. Um, in the beginning of the project, we did a much more formal, Uh, like paper prototype process where we'd be drawing up interfaces and then doing testing with them. Mm -hmm. um, but as you know, as it develops, like once we had like a software base, it was easy to just start prototyping in code um, and then go back to users and say, okay, you know, does this actually make sense? Um, does this solve the problem? Does this help you in you know any sort of trending analysis? Um, so it's been a really rewarding process of being able to have, you know, sort of a direct line to the people that are using it. And, you know, they can email us saying like, hey, like this drop down list, 
actually, it'd be really nice if I could filter it by text box. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go <laughs> get that and mm-hmm. let you know in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because it's very different to a few of the projects you have done before, right? So, for instance, you did mm-hmm. like these live tweet visualizations for Stamen for the MTV Awards. Yeah. That's like the app. Absolute opposite, like huge audience has to know, be absolutely seriously. done on exactly <laughs> one point, right? And then it's <laughs> then it's hot for two days, and then everybody moves on, right? Yeah, seriously, those those websites were basically built to last four hours, mm-hmm. and you know, like like the whole thing is just like trying to look super cool. And like I remember in San Francisco, like one of the first public talks that I gave, and I was showing this project, and someone in the audience was like, so. Like, how do you do user testing to make sure that what you've built is like an understandable interface? Yeah. And I was like, uh, well, oh, uh, I mean, it's too short of a project. There's no way that I could possibly do it. Right. Sorry. Yeah. You know, next question. <laughs> you know, looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, what mm-hmm. if I've been building like terrible things all these years that no one understands how to use? Like, I don't know. I guess this is like the thing that you like think about at night while you're trying to fall asleep. You're like, what if all of my work is just unintelligible? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but it's very interesting. But but don't you miss like also launching something and then there's big fireworks and then it's done? Like I mean, yes. That's that's the other thing. I don't know. And I mean, like, I think part of that is like an element of government work, I would say. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, once you start something like Momentum is very powerful, um, you know, in software projects at JPL, because like once people start using it, then they're like, okay, well, this needs to continue existing. It needs to be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was also an interesting process in that, like, I think a lot of the work that I've done previously has been, you know, either like smaller projects or short term projects. And you can just kind of like throw something together that mostly works and you'll be fine. Um, but, you know, this was developing like a full on application and, you know, once you start, like if you, like we did a design refactor um, at one point that, you know, from my perspective, basically took the site like kind of offline um, for a month. I mean, not really, like we left up the old design and then we're working in the background, you know, but like our customers are like, hey, like what little new knobs have you added? And we're like, oh no, it's like this gigantic (laughs) knob in the background, but we can't show it to you because it's taking a while and they're like, but it's been a month. And I'm like, I know, but you know, this is like a big new thing and sorry, it's hard to (laughs) put all of our work into, you know, completely new architecture. Um, So yeah, that's been interesting and kind of learning how to build like more sustainable visualization projects. Yeah. That's another interesting aspect. How do you write code that, that works for NASA? I mean, I think there is a. <laughs> we have a yeah. note here. Is it safe to run JavaScript in space? <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's it's a big change. I mean, between I don't know, coming up with a little prototype and doing something that works for 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 these people in these situations, or maybe not. It's <laughs> true. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's funny. I think like technically, Vortex is an experiment, and they have it in like you know, the experimental category that like all other, basically all other of the JavaScript projects at JPL are in this like experiment thing because there's, you know, a very rigorous security process if we were to come out and say like, okay, this is a tool that can be used for operations 100% of the time and there will never be any bugs. Yeah. Which, you know, when you're working on like a live application, yeah. you're like, oh, I don't, mm, I don't know mm. if I can promise that. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like Chrome updates and it doesn't work anymore, that would be bad, right? Yeah, yeah right? 
<laughs> and so how, how's the process there? Like, would you then, for the critical things, do you have just super rigorous QA or do you use different tools altogether or how? Yeah. Um, how that work? So, I mean, we write some automation tests. Um, the whole, the whole site is built in react. So that's what we're using for our framework. Um, and so, you know, there's some tools for building tests, um, on both like the back end and the front end, we're using Selenium. So, you know, like, there's tools out there, but a lot of it does come down to, you know, just at the end of the sprint, we're like, okay, everybody, you know, take your assigned mission and just like start clicking around and trying to see if you can break the site. Um, and, you know, the good thing is that, like, since we have such a personal connection with our users that if there's anything that they do find that goes wrong, you know, they can just email us, call us up, be like, hey, yeah. this thing, you know, it's broken, fix it. Yeah. So and they would know what good. a plausible, like, curve is, or, like, they would immediately see if, if you would do something wrong on the calculation. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah. They're very familiar with their data. So, you know, as soon as it's like not uh, what they're expecting, you know, we, mm -hmm. we get a good email. <laughs> are there any other things like when, when you're used to coding on Earth that, that are different in space? Like, uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> time. <laughs> time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, time yeah. is just, you think that time is complicated on Earth. And then, like, as soon as you're dealing with things that leave Earth, it's just, yeah. oh gosh, it's like, such a. What, what time zone nightmare. is in space? Like, is, is it UTC <laughs> or does it depend on where you are? How do, how Local do mean solar time. Oh, um, okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. So oh. There, there is like a standard. And then, I, I mean, a lot of it is based in like UTC. Um, but I mean, you have to account for like relativity on the spacecraft. Oh, really? Which is, yeah, kind of nuts. <laughs> like every single data point is tagged with three times. Um, there's spacecraft emitted time, Earth received time, and then spacecraft clock time. Um, so the wow. spacecraft emitted and Earth received are both in UTC. And then the spacecraft clock is like... Um, It's just a, a float number, which is the number of milliseconds that have elapsed since the last time that the computer booted up. Um, and so it's this difficult thing where, like, you know, let's see, what? There's some part of this process in the, like, the data ingesting that cuts off the milliseconds on the spacecraft emitted time so that sometimes things will be out of order. And so you have to go by the spacecraft clock time to oh like reorder yeah. them, even though it's like, you know, you're given the same timestamp <laughs> in JavaScript. So oh, that's yeah, there's, yeah. I, and then, and then you have to do, you know, stuff like, uh, since, since curiosity is on Mars, then you have Mars time. Um, and each, um, of the spacecrafts on Mars, you know, increment, they basically have a relative time uh, from their landing. So they have Sol zero. Sol is a Martian day, mm -hmm. uh, by the way. So each of them start with Sol zero when they land, and then you're incrementing, you know, time from there. Oh, and the other thing is that like curiosity starts from Sol zero, but opportunity started on Sol one. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're like, no. Who does can't that? Do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and Martian time is about 36 minutes longer than Earth time. There's some crazy stories about, like, when they were landing Curiosity, they basically kept the operators on Mars time. Um, so your day just kind of slowly shifts, and oh. you're, suddenly it's like, oh, okay, it's 3 a.m., better wake up and go to work. And <laughs> there's some, like, crazy stories. I don't know, my friend who works on that was telling me this thing where he went out for a run and then came back to his car to drive home, but there were groceries in the car 
And he couldn't remember if he had gotten the groceries before the run or if he had gotten them yesterday and left them in the car for a day. And then he drove home and he couldn't remember if he was supposed to like take a shower and go to work or if it was time for him to go to bed. And he took like, you know, 10 minutes like syncing up all his different calendars of like, I don't know when I am in time. Like, oh. <laughs> this could be the basis Thank for Thank God movie. they stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like an astronaut going crazy on yeah, the space exactly. station, you know, after being a year alone or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. wow. But I can imagine that time is the worst. I mean, already on Earth, but now that, oh man, <laughs> that must have been quite a. Do you know anything about puzzle. leap seconds? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's incredible because, like, you know, basically time is this like human construct of trying to understand like the rotation of our planet around you know the sun and so you know earth doesn't spin at a constant rate it's like slowing every so often which is why leap seconds get added Mm -hmm. and there's just like this group that decides to add a leap second you know you know based on calculations and stuff but they sort of announce it like six months ahead of when they're going to add this second um and then the interesting thing you know and sort of from a from a web application perspective is that uh the javascript time um I guess object construct doesn't track leap seconds. Um, so if you want like the true time when you're calculating it, you basically have to go and like find this file and then parse it and then find your date and then add the number of seconds that have been added, like, you know, since t- like leap seconds were established, you know, mm-hmm. um, and this is why I get into fights with people all the time about moment.js, which is a a wonderful JavaScript library, but it doesn't actually do you know extra like time outside of Earth very well. <laughs> like they, you know, there's no leap seconds in JavaScript, so yeah. you can't get leap seconds for Moment.js. And every single time that I mention anything about time on Twitter, people are like, "Oh, have you heard of Moment.js? Like, why don't you try that?" I'm like, "I'm talking about calculating Mars time. Like, why would Moment.js calculate that?" And they're like, "Well, I don't, it's actually really good. It has time zones." I'm like, "I know, but it's a different planet. Like, come on, leave me alone." But but that's a totally cool library to make. <laughs> Somebody should do it. Yeah, like tomorrow. the jQuery uh, yeah. Mars plugin. <laughs> There's like an open like Moment.js you know request of like, "Hey, can you implement Mars time for the different rovers?" And you know the creators of Moment.js are like, "No." Like, go figure it out. <laughs> oh, my but God. Are there any other things that are totally different from the normal world, let's say? So I could imagine there's a lot of curious stuff happening at NASA, no? Hmm. Any juicy, like, inside stories? I don't think I have access to that, honestly. <laughs> I'm in, like, I'm in the operations department. Uh-huh. So basically, uh-huh. you know, there's, like, two halves. There's the science and the operations. So, like, science, you know, they're all the people that are, like, collecting interesting data and, like, you know, making discoveries about the universe. And then operations are just the people that are, like, yeah, I'm going to show up to work and, like, make sure that nothing went wrong. And, like, what's the plan for next day? Oh, we got, like, a time limit. Like, better move fast. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's like the adrenaline junkies yeah. on the operations side. But... You know, I'm thinking more about like hardware degradation than like interesting things happening in the galaxy. <laughs> so, Rachel, how does one get to work for NASA? If some of, some mm. of our listeners want to do that, do you have any suggestions? Definitely. Or some of our podcast hosts? Yeah, also, <laughs> <laughs> or myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think step one would be. Uh, going on the Human Interfaces JPL Group website and then emailing a copy of your resume, 
we are definitely on the hunt for talented people that want to come join the team. But what kind of background or, I mean, what would you look for in a, in a CV of a person applying to, to NASA for this kind of job, um, of course? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it's funny because I think that there's been, you know, kind of like web technology has taken off recently yeah. at JPL. So there's not that many people who are writing JavaScript. And so, you know, if someone came in and said, Hey, you know, I've been making web applications. I've been writing JavaScript. I've got D3 experience, you know, all of those pretty standard visualization qualities, I think would translate very well to, um, a job opportunity at JPL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it's, You wouldn't have had that on the radar. And I, I remember I was quite surprised when I heard you are at NASA and I was like, wow, uh, how did that happen? But then I thought like, yeah, that totally <laughs> makes sense, you know, totally. but it's not mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. you would directly have on the radar. So yeah, that would be great if there was more, um, you know, exchange between these worlds, I could imagine, right? Yeah, yeah most definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, great. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, uh, I know you're into birds. Do you want to give out a shout out to your favorite, favorite bird or something? <laughs> shout out to macaws, conures, cockatiels, cockatoos. <laughs> the whole gang. Very yeah, nice. really. Yeah. No, it was really nice having you. Super interesting. Uh, yeah, thank yeah. you so much. And I think this is amazing. Yeah. And I really hope, yeah, more like... Um, web type people look at these types of jobs because I mm -hmm, think a, definitely. a lot of really cool stuff can be done in, the, done in that area. Yeah, I think so too. I hope there will be even more people doing database at NASA. That's just mm -hmm. perfect marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sounds <right>. great. <laughs> yeah, Cool. Thanks so much, Rachel. Great having Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of Data Stories is sponsored by Quadrigram a web-based application designed to bring data stories to life. With Quadrigram, you can create and share interactive data stories without the need of any coding skills. Check it out at quadrigram.com.